Now, like I said, I would like to begin with you a study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, really focusing on Paul's work in the Philippian church. And for that reason, we're reading Acts as a book um, as well. This particular journey that we're breaking into is what's commonly called Paul's second missionary journey. There are, it's agreed that there are three main journeys Paul took during 20 or 30 years of, of ministry, and they're substantial journeys. The first one is the smallest and is a circuit of the Asian region. That's not what we call Asia, but what would be called today Turkey. And Paul went round and established those early churches in that first journey. Several years later, they decide to go again. And this time he takes Silvanus with him, or as he's commonly called, Silas. He sets out just the two of them to go on a second journey. And their intention is to strengthen the churches in that first journey, first of all. And then to proceed further west into the rest of Turkey into the rest of Asia and establish more churches just to spread out a little. And as we're about to see, that doesn't happen. Something remarkable takes place that changes the entire plan because that was not Christ's will. And Paul ends up in a place that at this time he never planned to go at all. But this second missionary journey begins and it's around 49 AD that it takes place. And Paul's mission is to strengthen churches in an opposing uh, culture um, that he's left. And though there would have been elders and deacons left in charge of these churches. And he's going just to, to encourage them and strengthen them up and take them to the next level. And this is all found, this part of the missionary journey is found in Acts chapter 16. Now, he ends up as he's traveling in a place called Lystra. And there they meet and pick up uh, Timothy. That's in verse 1. And you know the history of Timothy. We read it together. We don't need to go into it. But because Timothy had gifts and so on, Paul recognized those immediately in the time they were in Lystra. And we know from First and Second Timothy that they laid hands on Timothy and ordained him. And that Paul, he became Paul's understudy. This isn't someone new who was converted. This is someone already steeped in God's word. Who was already known in his own city and the neighboring city of Iconium. As someone who was already very capable to do these things. Paul adds him to this team. So it's himself, Silas and then Timothy then. That are going to continue this work of mission and ministry. Now, Paul intends to continue west through the province of Asia and establish more churches. But like I said, a few remarkable things happen, and I hope these will instruct us and teach us and stimulate us this morning. First of all, we have a remarkable providence that takes place. See in verse 6, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried then to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them, or the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. 
So that's a, a prevention, a remarkable providence that we need to understand firstly. After preaching in that region, so that would be like Crawford County, Phrygia is a region with cities in it. That's a district that included Colossae, which you know, Laodicea, and a church that was also in Hierapolis. They were for, after they'd gone through there, they intended just to continue to fill out that region of Asia. But they were forbidden to do this. They intended to go west, further towards the Mediterranean Sea, that is the end of that Asian Turkish region where Ephesus was, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And Ephesus was an extremely prominent city. If, um, if Rome was New York or if Rome was Washington DC, then Ephesus would be a place like LA or something like that. This was a substantial city with institutions of learning, huge amounts of trade, highly populated, uh, filled with philosophers. And Paul later in his ministry would end up living there for two years and renting a philosophical hall and training ministers in that hall and establishing what became, I think, what the strongest church in the region. You read his letter to the Ephesians and he he doesn't need to give them milk at all. He thunders in, and the first chapter of Ephesians may be the highest and most complicated thing Paul ever wrote, packed in to a short space. And Paul just can speak this way to the Ephesians because of the success of the gospel that ends up happening in that church. Now, I think Paul at this point intends to get to Ephesus because he thinks that's where the gospel must next go. But we're told the Holy Spirit forbade him to do that. It stopped, he stopped Paul from doing that. And Paul doesn't know what to do, so then he decides, well, we'll go, we'll go north then to Bithynia, near the Black Sea, where there are other prominent cities that are nearby. But then he's forbidden to do that. Now, what's going on here in verse 7 when... Well, verse 6b, where it says that he's forbidden by the Spirit to preach. And verse 7, where the Spirit did not permit them. What's going on? This is the risen Christ um, overruling the will of Paul and their plans, which are godly and wise plans. Now, we have to make plans. And they're not always directly from God because of some special indication by him. Sometimes there are options. They must be weighed up and prayed over. And sometimes you just need to go. But Christ overrules it here. That's what's going on. It's not that the Spirit is displeased with Paul in any way. Or that his plans were wrong. But he specially overrules the planning. And then ends up showing Paul that there is something he intends to do through Paul's life. That Paul at the moment is not aware of. And how does the Spirit do that? How did Paul know and what were Timothy and Silas aware of? Well, there may have been some practical difficulty that just hindered them from getting there, some opposition on the way or when they arrived in a certain city. And sometimes you just know that it becomes practically impossible to get anything done. Uh, For example, if you were trying to do something today and 
Uh, we kept sending ministers to a place and the police kept interfering and pulling them out of the place and uh, fining them and all of these things. Yes, we must suffer for the gospel and even be persecuted, but sometimes something uh, just becomes so clearly a waste of time that the practical obstacles become so clear that it's not beneficial at the moment to continue to keep trying and do that thing. So then other options must be looked at. Maybe some practical uh, difficulty. Uh, The weather and things like that at this time could easily hinder travel. This is all done by foot. It takes many weeks to do and so on. One of them may have been injured. Paul may have been sick himself. We shouldn't discount that. I'm going to say something about this in a few moments because of another reason, but Paul was a sick man. He'd already been beaten and things a few times by this stage, but it's clear when he writes back to the church in Galatia, which is mentioned in this passage here, that he said, I, I, why are you departing from the gospel that I've given you and going back to circumcision? Because when I came, you accepted me like an angel of God. And you would have pulled out your own eyes and given them to me. Now that's a reference to the fact that there was something wrong with Paul's eyes due to either his conversion or just some disease that he had that affected his vision. It's clear when he signs letters um, that he's doing it as someone who struggles to see and he dictates all his letters to others that they write them down. These kind of classical uh, romantic uh, era art pictures of Paul sitting almost like an Englishman at a desk and He's got a fountain pen and so on. It's just fiction. Uh, Paul didn't write his letters like that at all. And I think it's perfectly fine for us to accept that Paul had these health issues. Now, that may have been an issue here too, for there was a medical center near the city of Troas that they ended up being guided to. I don't know if it was something about Paul that he was just hindered. We don't know. There may have just been a movement and conviction of the Spirit through prayer. And Paul's an apostle, and there may have been some kind of revelation to him that just made it clear to him, you are not to do this. So he tries another thing, you are not to do this. What does that tell us? Well, we ought to pray for God's will. Continually to know it and detect it and to try and understand it. That, that can become a very dangerous enterprise for us to do. I'm sure you yourself or you've known people that have tried to figure out God's will and got it quite wrong. But that doesn't change the fact that we are to be sensitive to God's will. He has a will revealed in the Bible anyway that gives us the principles. There are certain things we just don't do and that are foolish to do because God's word makes clear in principle that these are not good ideas or that they're even sinful themselves and directly against his commandments. So we're never being guided to go and do something that the Bible says we should never do. But although we have his will here, that doesn't tell you which town you're meant to live in. That doesn't tell you how, that doesn't tell you what kind of ministry you're supposed to conduct. That doesn't tell you what kind of job you should have or what university you should study in and these things. That must be done through prayer and being sensitive to God's will. And he will guide. He'll just make it known in various ways. Psalm 32 says, Paul has confidence in this, that God says uh, to, uh, David has confidence that God says to him, I will guide you with my eye and I will show you direction 
Do not be like the horse or mule that does not understand and that bridles must be put in their mouths to pull them in a way they do not want to go. I will guide you with my eye. My eye is upon you. I am involved in your situation. I see every detail. And every new detail that comes into your situation is fed in by the Lord. And he will guide you with his eye. He sees the way that you can't see. And he will show you direction, the psalm says. So we must be watchful and prayerful to our circumstances. Whether they're remaining the same and beginning to rot and become unprofitable. Or whether new things come in that are unexpected. And we're not sure why we're there. People or a work situation or a family situation, a church situation, any area of your life. It must be looked at with humility and caution, but prayer and expectation. Lord, guide me with your light. Send your light forth and your truth. Let them be guides to me. Guide me with your eye. Show me direction. And watch for his indicators in the situation. Are you being prevented from doing something? Um, Is something not working out? And so on. What principles are involved? Are they right or wrong? What godly advice is being given by those who may be more experienced than you, who are particularly close to the Lord? What does the church have to say about it? Um, What providences are happening in your situation? Be sensitive to his will. Pray to be led and guided by the Lord. Wait upon him. And when the time comes to act, the Lord has has promised that he will either follow you in the act and let you know this isn't the way, or he will make it plain to you before you have to even step through that door. This is my way. So we just take a lesson here that Paul is guided by the hand of God. And what a comfort that is, actually, because... He's an apostle, and we have this kind of view of him, that he always knew what to do, and Christ was constantly speaking to him in a special revelation kind of way. Not the case. He had those moments throughout his life, but most of the time, Paul is behaving and exercising himself as a Christian just like you or I. And when he's making plans like this, he needs to pray and these things just as I described to you. So, he, he says, Let, let's keep going into Asia, and it becomes clear to him that they can't go there. Let's go up to Bithynia. We can't go there. So Paul looks at the map, and further northwest, there's the border of that Turkish area, Asia, that district, which meets the Mediterranean Sea. And Troas is right on the coast. And after that, you just have a large sea area. And on the other side of it is Greece, where the gospel had not yet gone. So, we're told in the passage that they are led to Troas. Passing by Mysia, verse 8, they came down to Troas. That's where they ended up on the western part of Turkey, on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, where that part of the sea was called the Aegean Sea, uh, which is the Greek Sea, and it leads to Greece. 
So there's the remarkable providence that prevented Paul from his plan and took him to Troas. And he doesn't know when he's approaching Troas and he sees it. He's not really sure. Why have we been led here? I'll preach the gospel here. I'll look for people to share it with here. He's not sure why they have come to Troas. And two remarkable things happen in Troas when they're there. One is, and it's not, it's not fully apparent on the surface of the verses, but he meets Luke in Troas. In verse 11, therefore sailing from Troas, this is when they're leaving it, we ran a straight course to Samothrace and then to Neapolis and then to Philippi. Do you see that route? They sail from Troas across the Aegean Sea. They land in Samothrace, go to Neapolis and end up in the city of Philippi. But notice that we ran a straight course. Why all of a sudden does it say we? Uh, Look at the rest of the verses. Verse 6. When they had gone through Phrygia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Verse 7. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go in, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Now Luke's very humble. He doesn't say, at this point I joined the journey and here's my CV and these are all the things I have done. Luke doesn't want to write about himself. But there's a change in verse 11 all of a sudden to we. And Luke is writing this account of the Acts. This is his history. And this is the first section in Acts that are called the we passages in Acts. And there are three of them. This is the first There are two later on in the book. All the rest of the time, Luke says, they did this, they did that, Paul did this, Peter did that. And Luke is writing that as a history because he wrote the Gospel of Luke first, a full account of Jesus' life and ministry. Then he wrote Acts, a full account of Christ's outpouring of the Spirit and the, the apostles' effectiveness in the Spirit. Two Huge books, full of history and detail. And we know that Luke interviewed Jesus' mother and his siblings. He interviewed other disciples that had followed Christ for his whole ministry. He interviewed Peter. And he certainly interviewed Paul for the rest of his life. Luke interviewed a lot of people to come to record his gospel and then to record Acts. And everything up until this point... Luke has written later in life, having interviewed Paul and the others and been given the details of everything that happened in Jerusalem and Samaria up until this point. But then all of a sudden, verse 11, we then sailed. So Luke is all of a sudden with them. He's on the boat going over to Greece. Paul arrived with Timothy and Silas. And then when he leaves Troas, there's a man called Luke who's with them, who is recording what's going on and saying, we did this and then we did that. This is interesting for a few reasons. Um, He must have met Luke there. Now, I mentioned earlier there was a medical kind of training center, a kind of college that was near Troas. There were many in the ancient world. They weren't as backward as many people think. And Luke may have trained there and lived in Troas. He may have been teaching there, or he may have just been practicing medicine in Troas. Now, Paul had a problem with his eyes. Perhaps 
I'm just suggesting this, that I'm not teaching this to you. You can think about it yourself. Perhaps the reason they ended up choosing to go to Troas is there was a problem that Paul had, and they knew that this medical center was near Troas, or that there was a well-known doctor in Troas, and Paul needed treatment. If that didn't happen, they certainly went into Troas, and they didn't just stay in the hotel or stay in the bed and breakfast. Paul must have gone out to the shops, He must have gone maybe where there was worship or where people were discussing ideas. And Paul spoke to people and he shared the gospel with them. He found a way to bring up the gospel in these what we would call mundane situations. When you're at the doctor's office or when you're um, at the hairdressers or when you're standing in line at the grocery store, Paul found a way to raise the only important thing that matters eternally heaven, hell, and the gospel. That's all that matters. The weather doesn't matter. Our interests don't matter, ultimately. It's fine to mention them, but Paul would bring this up. And either at Luke's office or somewhere in the town, he is introduced to Luke. We don't know Luke's history, what he believed up until this point, how capable he was, but Paul obviously wants to include him all of a sudden either because he wants to include him in the ministry itself or he wants a doctor with him. We don't know. We're told that Luke was a physician. I I hope we all know that. That's what Luke's occupation was. This is a great providence. And although Paul was prevented from the other places, look at God's grace here and, and take that for your own life. That when you are prevented from going in here or there, when your plans are frustrated... When, when the work dries up and people are laid off, when you can't get a place in that school or your child can't get a place in that college, when someone becomes sick and people need to move houses to be near parents or children, whatever the practical change is that's going on right now, life is, from that standpoint, very uncertain. It can, re- it can really um, uh, unhinge us emotionally, that we don't know what to do or why a thing is happening. Look at the kind of thing that the Holy Spirit does. This is one of the reasons that he took Paul through Troas. Luke has a lot to do with it. Not only to physically help Paul, uh, but that Luke ended up going to Philippi with these men. And when the church is planted there, we know later that Paul and the others left, and they actually left Luke in Philippi, in that congregation with the new converts. They left Luke there. Later, Luke followed Paul on large journeys again and helped him. He accompanied him on other missionary trips. He was faithful to Paul and a friend and brother to him when Paul suffered most and was under arrest and charges for his ministry that the Jews were trumped up charges against him, and Luke was a friend to Paul. Every person who preaches the gospel needs friends. They need support, especially when they're being opposed unfairly, maliciously, or even being charged and arrested, as is happening to many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world right now in Reformed churches and gospel-believing evangelical churches. Paul, uh, Luke became a friend to Paul. And he says to Timothy at the very end of his life, when he's taken out of house custody, and he may have been let go for a short time, but then ends up when under Nero, 
under the great persecution of Christians in Rome, when they're being crucified and burned upside down, Paul is cast in to a proper dungeon, and he's on death row. And Paul knows the end is nigh. And there are preachers that have forsaken Paul, that have begun to teach against him. He says, Paul says, at the end of his life, isn't this awful? He says to Timothy, you stand firm, because all the ministers in Asia have forsaken me. These are churches Paul planted. They've all forsaken me. But he says to Timothy, only Luke is with me. This is someone who became a brother to Paul up until the very end. He's in Rome with Paul, in danger of his own life. And he was the physician who Paul met in Troas through a gracious providence of God here. Now you look for that, brothers and sisters. People are important. You don't know the person you've met in this church or in your daily walk, in your office, Uh, Wherever you spend your time, you have no idea the plans that God may have for you in his kingdom or for your children and that the people that you or they meet may become the most significant person, actually, that they've ever met. Either to be a guide and um, leader of them or to be an encourager and friend and a lover of their soul in something hard they have to do. Friendship is important in the Bible. Jonathan's heart, though his father was the rightful king, and Jonathan was next in line to the throne, he looked at David, and it says he loved him as his own soul, and his heart was knitted to David's heart. And Jonathan was willing to to sever ties even with his own father to protect David, because David was the one who the Lord had loved and who loved the Lord. And Jonathan knew that loving God is more important than even these kind of worldly ties, especially when the person is venomous against the gospel. Look for friends and be careful when you meet people and don't judge quickly. You have no idea. I wonder if Paul knew when he met Luke that this is the one who will be with me to the end that I can rely on. I wonder if that's what he knew. Paul didn't pray for this. Not specifically. Paul's just following God's will. And providentially, he says, let's go to Troas. He sets foot in Troas and he's stepping in to the gracious, kind providence of God. And God gives us things like this. When we're walking down the street or we go into a doctor's office or we're planning to set sail to work for Christ... And at the last moment, someone is just provided into Paul's providence that's going to become a friend to him. So remember that. So that's the first um, significant thing that happened in Troas. The second significant thing is the one that's very clear in the passage. And that's that Paul receives a vision. Verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And he's obviously told Luke this. Luke hears about this right away. Luke, the next day they're on the ship and Luke says, why are we going over to Greece? And Paul tells him, I received a vision. And he tells Luke all about it. Luke tells us a vision appeared to Paul in the night. It was a man of Macedonia pleading with him, saying, come over and help. 
us. This happens at night. It's not a dream like Joseph had or like Jacob had or um, like Pontius Pilate's wife had. These dreams that troubled them in the night or Joseph's dreams that gave vivid dynamic pictures of the fall of Egypt and, and so on. This is a vision. A vision happens when a man is in a wakened state and he sees beyond this world uh, and a direct revelation from the Spirit of God that shows him something of divine truth. That's what this is. He's awake. I, I'm not surprised he's awake. I don't, I, I, I'm not surprised that he's awake um, because his, his plans have been affected and he's in Troas and he's, he's trying to figure out what to do. And he's seeking God like I called on us to do. He's, he must be praying. I mean, what else would Paul be doing? Paul's more than willing to stay up all night and pray. Later in the Philippian jail, him and Silas are singing and praising God all night in the prison when the jailer is asleep. I have no doubt that Paul um, is praying here and um, God blesses that prayer. Paul says, what should I do? Where do I go from Troas? Do I go back? Do I get in a boat? God blesses his humble and willing service heart. He's like Samuel, Lord, speak for your servant hears. And I will do whatever you reveal to me to do. And the Lord responds and reveals to him through this vision. And in the vision of, is a man of Macedonia. And Macedonia is the huge region that we now call Greece. It is the, the governmental region under Rome that is known as Greece uh, today. Underneath that is Achaia, uh, where I think it's Corinth was the capital of Achaia, and Athens is in the Macedonian region, and so is Philippi. So he sees a Greek man, a Gentile, and God is revealing this to him, and the man speaks, and he says, come over to Macedonia Help us. This is a powerful thing, a wonderful thing that's happening to Paul. It's obviously a very important moment for some reason in Paul's life and in the life of the New Testament church that he's given this special vision of this Greek man saying, we need help, I need help, come over to help us. So Paul is staying somewhere. Near the Aegean Sea, there's a long trip over uh, those waves and that great body of water. And the Macedonian country is on the other side. And Paul sees a vision of someone in that region saying, come here, we need help. And what help do they need? It's a good, good question to ask our church. What help does it need and what help can you give as a Christian? And what should be the ministry of the denomination and the, the church of Christ today? There's many things the church can do, but when this man says, come over and help us, what, what is he asking for? The only help that ultimately matters. The, the, the priority help, which is the preaching of the gospel for the salvation of sinners. That's all that matters. Everything else is secondary and subservient to that. That's all that matters. 
And Paul picks up on that. I mean, he says that they, they figured out, he said, that God had determined uh, for them uh, to go and preach the gospel to them, verse 10. He concluded that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's what matters. That's the life-saving measure. When someone has an accident out there, uh, the paramedics call for the uh, blood uh, to be given intravenously to the person. The, the, the triage is set up, and this is urgent, and this is the important thing, and that's what the gospel preaching is. Other things have their place, and the church can help in many ways, both temporal and spiritual. But let's have the gospel preaching, the gospel sharing, the simple message of salvation must be right here because people need to be saved. And that's what Paul was about, to preach the gospel and to give the people of Asia and the Jews and the Greeks the truth. They need the truth. The philosophers in Athens need the truth. The people living in Philippi, the soldiers living in Philippi, the women workers living in Philippi, they need to be told the truth. No one's telling them the truth. The Roman Empire can't tell them the truth. The philosophies of Rome and Greece can't tell them the truth. The great Greek philosophers can't tell them the truth. Paul wants to tell them the truth because these things have permanent consequences for them, for us, and everyone you meet this week. Every single person you see is going somewhere permanently. These things are of permanent eternal consequence and there is no established Pauline church in all of Greece we're going to see in a couple of weeks that lo and behold there are a few believers meeting by a river a few women who who are drawing from the Jewish faith but this visioned man we need help We're in trouble. People are lost and in darkness. They're going to hell. The gospel of Christ has been won by him, as Christ himself said, to spread throughout the whole world without bounds. That Christ secured that for himself to all nations. That Christ will preach the gospel to every creature under heaven as far as the horizon goes. And the Macedonian man appears to Paul and says, the people in Macedonia are in pagan darkness and no church can be built here and no gospel can flourish here unless there is help, the help of your preaching, the help of your apostolic ministry. What do we focus on? We consider the ways in which we, what we believe and the way we are to help in the kingdom do you want to help in the kingdom and if so what kind of thing is it is it a purely practical way which the lord does not despise and values but what way do you want to help this church what way do you want to help the evangelical church in our region and in in our nation what way do you want to help do you want the gospel completely unveiled and, and without reservation and heaven and hell and the cross preached freely and supported by as many ministers as possible and as many missionaries as possible do you help that work is that the most important work in your church and gospel life
That's the help that's needed. So we have a preventing providence that Paul and ourselves need to work out and understand what the Lord is saying and be prayerful. And as he progresses seeking the Lord's will, two of these things happen to him in Troas by the sea. He meets Luke, which has huge consequences for his ministry, and he receives one of the most important calls of his life to go over to Greece and to spread the gospel. And just as we leave this, I've got a couple more things to say, um, but just as we leave this, um, notice in verse 10 that it says that after he'd seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel there. That word concluding is a lot more important than, than it looks in English there. His plans being frustrated and confused, the trip to Troas, meeting Luke and receiving this vision, it says Paul here deliberated, or it's even used in the New Testament, this word, to prove something in court, uh, to think about it, to put the pieces together, it means. It doesn't just mean I concluded something and I'll try it. Paul looked at the things I've just said to you, those three areas that took place. And that night, after that vision, he put it together and deliberated and put the pieces together and was absolutely certain and he understood and he had proven what God's will was. And it says then he immediately did it. He didn't wait a week. He didn't wait a couple of months based on his physical condition or the finances of the group or that maybe there was a few more people he could witness to and throw us. As soon as God said go, Paul concluded and put it together and he immediately obeyed the next day, as soon as he could leave. This word concluded is used by Paul in um, Colossians in that famous verse that says we are to be knitted together in love. That phrase, he knitted together these things and he saw them. So as you consider those things I've said to you, piece it together in your own life when these things come up and be open and humble and receptive and self-sacrificial, something that all of us too easily claim to be but not always are, self-sacrificial to give things up for Christ, to give up comforts for Christ and situations for Christ. Be humble, open, and ready to do his will. You have no idea how he might use you. It doesn't matter what age you are or what your occupation is right now. You have no idea what God may call you to. No idea at all. He could call you to be a missionary. He could call you to preach the gospel He could call you to support a church in a very special way. You have no idea. Come to him and be the kind of Christian that is all too rare today that says, I'm not living for myself and building up my own little empire. What would you have me do with the time I have left in this world? What is it, Lord? What can I do for you? What can I give up for you? Where can I serve What can I give my time, my energy, my money, and my mind, and my heart and affections to? What could it be, Lord? Whoever offers up that prayer genuinely will be answered. 
And if God calls you to do something, do it immediately. Do what Paul did. Get on the boat, which was dangerous, and go. Do it immediately. So there are those things. Difficult providence and two significant things that happened to Paul in that city. Let's just close with this before we return to Philippians uh, the next time we are together. This vision that causes this trip that Paul's just about to make is hugely significant in the word of God, in God's great covenant unfolding throughout time, uh, from Noah to the Jews to the, the history of Israel and to the New Testament church. This is a watershed moment. In verse 11 and 12, they, they run through these various places, and then in verse 12, they go to Philippi, which is the foremost or one of the foremost cities of Macedonia. And Paul is just using his wisdom here. He doesn't stop in the first place. He goes to, to the prominent city where the most people are um, and where the gospel will have most effect and then can spread out. So he's still using basic wisdom here. But when it says they came to Philippi, and at the end of the verse, they stayed in that city for some days, this is a watershed moment that, that we need to understand. This is Paul setting foot in Europe, which Europe became the most influential area in the history of the world. This is Paul setting foot there with these men and beginning to establish a church there. Later on, he'll put churches in Corinth and Athens and then set his sights on Rome itself, the capital of the world. But this is him stepping onto the ground for the first time. This is the gospel of the Jew from Nazareth somehow entering Europe and being presented to Greek people who have nothing to do with a Jew from Nazareth. This is God's covenant being fulfilled and his will for the world. You see the promises of Scripture fulfilled. God said this would happen. That this is important. That although salvation is of the Jews, and God had a special place in his plan for the Jews, as Christ said, the kingdom shall be taken from you. He told the leaders in Jerusalem, it will be taken for you, from you. you. The sons, the kingdom will be taken from the sons, and it will be given to a nation that will bear the, thr- the fruits thereof. It will be given to the Gentiles. Go preach, he told them, in his risen state. Go preach. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the utmost parts of the world. This is who God is. He had a special place in his heart for the Jewish people whom he called his sons. But let us never forget that God always had a gracious and merciful gospel purpose for the whole world and every nation, color, tribe, and tongue. The Korean people, the African people, the South American people, the Russian people, all of them, God offers himself, he offers the gospel to all these people. God says through Isaiah, listen, O islands, I will make him a light to the Gentiles. 
I shall bring forth justice to the Gentiles. The islands shall wait upon me and worship me. The Psalms. The Lord reigns. That's Christ. Let the earth rejoice and let the multitude of all the islands be glad. Psalm 67. That your way may be made known in all the earth and your salvation to every nation and he will govern the nations and all the ends of the earth will fear our God. The Father of Christ and Christ himself will be feared in the Amazon, in the deserts of Africa, in Australia, in China, in Russia, in Siberia, in Alaska. This is his will. We're going to close with Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all Gentiles. Laud him, all peoples. For his covenant love is great towards us and his faithfulness endures for eternity. Praise Jehovah. This is Christ's will. This is what he did in the gospel. It breaks its banks from Israel and Judah and Christ will be worshipped by anyone who's a descendant of Adam. All colors and nations and languages that the Chinese language will sing his praise, that the Spanish and Portuguese language will sing his praise, that the English language will sing his praise, that the Aborigine language will sing his praise, that Urdu and the Islamic languages too will sing his praise, the Arabs will sing his praise, and last of all, the Hebrew language will again sing the praise of Christ. Promised by God. And we don't, we're not jealous of Paul. This is the man God used to do this. He set foot in Philippi with no one really to help him. But he, this is a man who knew his Old Testament. Every verse I read to you there, Paul basically quotes in Romans 15 when he puts together a systematic explanation of the gospel going to the Gentiles. Paul gets on that boat with these Psalms in his mind and and Isaiah's vision for the world in his mind. And Paul knows the gospel will go to the Gentiles and it will save them. That is you. What mercy. That is you. This isn't a lesson in history. This had consequences in your life in your parents' life, in your grandparents' life. There were no feeders of Jehovah in the great American plains. There were no feeders of Jehovah in India or in Australia when Paul was alive. There were no feeders of Jehovah in Canada and Alaska and in the tribes of all these continents, in Europe itself, in France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. They all worship the sun and the moon and the stars and the animals and the crops. And they were in darkness and they were in utter foolishness and death. And they lived and they died in futility. This is for us. You have the gospel today because God fulfilled this through the ministry of Paul. And it took root. And Rome tried to crush it and it spread And it took over Rome. It took over 
Germany, it took over France, it took over the United Kingdom, and through the great missionary enterprises of the 1800s and 1700s, it got flung through the Reformed Church that did it to every corner of the world. And now you're sitting in church saying, Jesus Christ, you're hearing his word preached. We are reading a book written by a man who met Paul in Troas one evening. And here it is being read in Meadville, Pennsylvania. God's purposes are sure. And the gospel is for these people and nothing can stop it spreading when it is filled with the Spirit of God. Look at Paul going into Philippi and as you sit in Meadville and think of this nation, the plan before you, the task before you is no different than it was for Paul and the Philippian church as it looked at the Roman Empire. May God bless all of these thoughts um, on his word. And next time we'll see them uh, enter Philippi and the first conversions in Philippi. Let us pray.